Parenting is often lived in the extremes. It's either great joy or chaotic overwhelm. In one moment, you're nailing it, and the next, you're losing your cool. I want to help you find your way to the messy middle, to a place of balance. You see, balance is a verb, not a state of being. It is a thing you do, not a thing you are. It is an action, a process, a series of micro-corrections that you make each and every day to keep yourself feeling centered. We are never truly balanced. We are engaged in the process of balancing. Hello, I'm Dr. Laura Froyan, and this is the Balanced Parent Podcast, where overwhelmed, stressed out, and disconnected parents go to find tools, mindset shifts, and practices to help them stop yelling at the people they love and start connecting on a deeper level, all delivered with heaping doses of grace and compassion. Join me in conversations that will help you get clear on your goals and values and start showing up in your parenting, your relationships, your life with open-hearted authenticity and balance. Let's go. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Laura Froyan, and on this week's episode of the Balanced Parent Podcast, we are going to be talking about how we can bring a lens of respect and connection into our child's interactions with education and into their academic life. And to help me with this conversation, I am bringing in my new friend and colleague, Philip Mott, who is an expert in non-authoritarian approaches to educating and raising your children. Philip, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for hosting this space to have conversations like these and for the parents who are are looking for topics like this. So I live in Indiana with my wife and three children. Oldest is seven, and we have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And we have been homeschooling since the beginning, really starting with the search for a preschool And we were really into play-based learning, non-academic, just wanted our son to be able to play with other kids and do self-directed things. And we just really had a hard time finding that option available. Mm -hmm. So we started exploring homeschooling, which my wife was not on board with from the beginning. I always thought homeschooling was interesting. My parents homeschooled us for a few years. So we started exploring that. At the time, I was still teaching in the classroom. I'm a former elementary school teacher. And as we started exploring self-directed learning more and homeschooling more, the tensions between me and administration and school uh, just kept heightening. I couldn't bring myself to do a lot of the things and sort of check a lot of the boxes the administrators were asking me to check. Can I ask you a question about that real quick? Yeah, sure. Okay, so it's we're recording this at the beginning of the school year, and a lot of the questions that are coming in to both my membership and on my Instagram page are around kids coming into a school system, oftentimes they're kindergartners, so it's their first time in a formal education setting, and the parents are quite concerned about the discipline practices that the teachers are using. And when we talk about it, I help them understand that oftentimes teachers don't have a lot of say in the discipline 
practices that are used in their class. And do you have any recommendations though for parents who are working in a system where their kid is in a system where they are using clip chart, clipping up and down for good behavior yeah, yeah. and bad behavior or um, the stoplight method, the you know red, yellow, and green zones. Um, do you have any recommendations for parents who are in that place with their kids where they're bumping up against a system like that that's not in alignment with how these parents are working with their kids at home? Yeah, I do. The most basic premise I try to offer parents is that honesty to prepare our kids for that environment, not by being hard on them and saying, this is what you need to do, but this is what you need to be aware of. I wrote this a pamphlet that I never really published. It was 25, I think I called it 25 Truths About School. And it was meant to be a little bit humorous. It kind of makes me think, I need to get that back out and maybe work on this. But yeah. things that are almost humorous, like the halls look like you should be running in them, but you're not allowed to. Your teacher won't let you talk whenever you want to, but they'll ask you to talk at certain times. Like little things that we sort of take for granted as adults. We know that those are truths about school. Because we were indoctrinated but... into the culture of school. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. For most of us. But, <laughs> but we don't think to tell to communicate our kids it. that it's not like I'm saying to my son, you're not allowed to run in the hallways. I'm saying that if you choose to run in the hallways, which is a reasonable decision when we're together in an empty hallway the adults that are caring for you in that setting will frown upon it. And you need to think about that before mm. you make that choice. Oh my gosh. So you're, t you're doing informed decision-making with your kids. Yeah. Helping absolutely. them make an informed decision. That's beautiful. Yeah. Oh, that's so true about hallways. My dad was a high school teacher and he always had to grade papers. And so I would go to school with him in the morning and the school would be empty. Mm. And I spent my entire childhood just running, sprinting hallways. <laughs> so much fun <laughs> i mean yeah when kids see a long corridor they're like i have to run i have to get through this corridor like i don't know what it is but it's so conducive to running but it, you're not allowed to do it yeah. we kind of got that concept from i can't remember exactly where the principal came from i think it was magda gerber who you may be familiar with mm -hmm. when she talked about preparing an infant for a diaper change was kind of the example that she would use. And so even at that young age, when we think that they can't understand anything that, that we're saying, she was always very encouraging to parents that you need to prepare your infant for what's going to happen. Yeah. This wet wipe is going to be cold. I'm going to undo your diaper. Now we're going to take off your dress now or your pants mm -hmm. now and preparing them almost like getting their consent and we started to recognize that over time at you know nine ten eleven months the infant would start to participate in the diaper changes okay. because they knew what was coming my and, kids were uh, even younger i think my young second child was eight weeks when she started to yeah. like lift her chest at the time when I would pick her up after the diaper change. Yeah. Yeah. Be picked up. Absolutely. So for our listeners who don't know who we're talking about, Magda Gerber is the, the founder of an approach to parenting that's called resources for infant educators or RIE. Janet Lansbury is probably the most well-known proponent of RIE. But part of it is that as you are caring for this approach to 
early parenting, so two and under, really views caretaking times as an opportunity to deeply and intimately connect with your child. And part of that is respecting them as individuals, treating them with dignity, and informing them about what's going to be happening to them. I think when we say like getting consent during diaper changes, which really is what's happening, people get all ruffled, you know, their baby, they can't consent, they can't talk back to us. That's not really what we're saying. We're saying that they are informed about what's happening to their body. Yeah. And I absolutely see this parallel that you're encouraging us to make as our kids move into a new setting where there's new expectations, that we give them the information that they need to be successful in those new environments that they maybe don't have a lot of choice about being in. Yeah, and recognizing that they have a choice and that they can weigh the options, that you don't necessarily have to say this is how it's going to be. These are the choices you have to make. It's these are the choices you have to make. And here are the consequences for choosing one way or the other. Yeah, here's Some that of the possible outcomes. Yeah. And those are not going to be imposed by me. Of course, I'm kind of a wordsmith a little bit. So I don't like to use the word consequences when it's something that I make happen. That's a punishment. A consequence yes. is something that happens whether I'm there or not. So like running on the ice and slipping and falling, that's a consequence. It's not an inevitable consequence where if I thank you for being silly, you know, mm -hmm. that's a punishment. <laughs> oh, that makes my heart hurt. <laughs> I come across parents like that all the time. Like you're being silly. Do you need a nap or a timeout or a spanking? And it's like, and like, you need to learn their consequences. Like that's not a consequence. And I have real problems with people who, misuse that word. I do think that in our community, we teach about natural consequences, consequences that, you know, happen without any intervention. And then logical consequences is a term that gets used a lot. I think it's a very slippery slope between yeah. setting a boundary to protect your environment or your child and shifting that into a punishment. So for example, a logical consequence, at least the way I use it, and this is for your listeners that you, Philip, you're welcome to use the term however you prefer, would be like if the, you find your kiddo drawing on the walls of their bedroom and that's not okay with you because it is okay in some families, but if that's not cool with you, a logical consequence would be that they either don't have crayons or writing materials in their room for my kid. I, she wanted to be able to draw on her walls. So we painted one of her walls with chalkboard paint and then she could do that how, you know, in a way that worked for her. And that was the consequence of her drawing on the walls was that we collaborated together. That was the outcome. You know, outcomes are interesting, you know, maybe a better word for that. Yeah. It's a good point to bring up and it's like, okay, so even a logical consequence, well, who is it logical to? Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. does it have to make sense to the child too, for it to be a logical consequence? God, such a I'm not claiming to know the answer to that, but I'm very aware that if I try to justify a consequence by saying it's logical, that it's my logic that I'm using, mm -hmm. or it's possibly the logic of the culture, the patriarchy that I'm a part of, and it might not be logical to the child. So even if oh it, Oh my gosh, I love that. <laughs> it may feel like a punishment, even though from my perspective, it's a logical consequence. And then they're upset. And then I shame them for being upset because they're the ones that are illogical. So then I'm adding insult to injury. Oh, oh my gosh, this is and, such a good question. Whose logic is it? Logical to whom? It's really important to challenge ourselves with that and step back and say, 
what am I so mad about? Or why am I being impatient? Because we're so quick to push the blame onto our child. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you being this way today? And it's so hard to do that internal work of why am I being this way today? Why am I feeling triggered? That's a much harder question to answer. It's so much harder to look at ourselves, but that's what conscious parenting is, right? It's being willing to be aware and notice and curious with ourselves and question, am I doing this out of habit, out of conditioning, or is it something that I choose to do in my relationship with my child? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. We're supposed to be talking about education. And I (laughs) I think that we are talking about it because, yeah. I mean, education happens within the context of a relationship, regardless of where your child goes to school. And we're talking about healthy, respectful relationships right now, right? Mm-hmm. So when you think about respectful instruction, what does that mean to you? How can we be respectful in our interactions with our children around their academics and education? It's a way of thinking about how our child sees us and how they see and receive the information or refuse to receive the information that we're trying to give them. So one thing I see a lot of teachers did while I was teaching and a lot of parents still do is that they think that instruction is about asking questions about like quizzing our kids. What color is this? What shirt are you wearing? Is this right or left? And I think that those questions can become nagging and it can actually become this thing that makes a kid feel stupid because they don't know the answer that you're looking for. That's not a good foundation for developing, for allowing curiosity to kind of reign where learning really comes through curiosity. So if we're going to ask a question, it should probably, I try to make sure that it's a question that I don't know the answer to. How big is the earth? Like how far away is the moon? I'm not quizzing them. I'm saying, I don't know the answer to that either. But if I know the answer to it, then it feels more like a test. So if I want them to know the answer to something, I just tell them the answer. I tell them what I think is important for them to know. And then I try to only ask questions if it's something that I don't know the answer to. So that's what I, where I come from on instruction quite a bit is that instruction is about waiting for a child to be curious about something and then giving them the information and not making it school-ish, which school-ish tends to be like, here's a worksheet. We covered this last week. Let's see if you remember it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's a really frustrating experience. I mean, none of us would like to experience that from our boss or our spouse. You know, we don't like to be, men have such a habit of doing this, of like asking a question looking for an answer, but the person that's being asked doesn't know the exact answer. And it's hardly ever the right one. Yeah. I've been on the receiving end of that process. It's kind of like mansplaining. It is. That's, uh, mansplaining <laughs> is the word I was looking for. Like, and I, you know, I've been on the receiving end of that in conversations around like football, you know, where like, I like football. I know a lot of the rules in football and, you know, and when, Sometimes when guys hear that in my younger years, they would be like, oh, really? Well, what does this mean? You know, and what does this mean? You know, what is this? You know, do you know about this rule? And 
to, I don't know, to test me, to see it. Like, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting process that doesn't feel good. Yeah. And I can understand why kids wouldn't like that too. Yeah. It's very, uh, it's disorienting, um, mm-hmm. to, um, to be asked something that you're not really sure of. And the body language, uh, of course, the body language actually matters in that the way that we're asking Kids can read into that and they can feel the energy, whatever you want to call it from us. They can feel our attitude toward them. It's almost hierarchical and implied power imbalance that can feel unsafe and not good. Yeah. Let's see if you're good enough for me. Yeah. Like the way I'm asking that question. Mm-hmm. So you're recommending then that we follow the child, that we follow their curiosity. We allow them the opportunity to get curious and I can see how that would work in a homeschooling and or unschooling situation. How does that work when our kids are in school where they don't have as much say over the curriculum, where they don't have as much opportunity to follow their curiosity um, because someone else is deciding what stories they'll read and what topics they'll be yeah. in. For those of us who have kiddos who are in school, either public school or private school, where we can help them with this, or we can at least take this approach ourselves? I think one thing to remember is that we can trust their curiosity won't be squelched by a single event. You know, curiosity is kind of like happiness that ebbs and flows, goes up and down. And so remaining curious ourselves about what the teacher is choosing to do and how a student is choosing to react and not feeling too threatened if for some reason they're uninterested or they're not performing along standard lines and actually being curious ourselves instead of thinking about what we want for our kids in their education trying to figure out through observation kind of like a scientist would what does my child want from their education? I think that's a big gap. Oh my gosh, that's a huge question that I don't think very many parents are asking. Yeah, I don't think so. It's because the culture is telling us that as a parent, it's your job to decide what is important for your child. Mm -hmm. And from a self-directed perspective, it's not that we say that it's never important for an adult to decide, although some do, but the child belongs in that their desires matter as well. Their desire doesn't necessarily matter more than yours every time or all the time, but it matters. And so even a first grader, these are hard conversations to have because you're going to get some really weird answers. But observation, I think is the key is that you want to try to figure out what are they trying to get out of their education I think most of the time that answer is they want a decent relationship with the people that they're around every day. (laughs) So let's say to a first grader, I might say, okay, you've got some homework. I don't know why you have homework in first grade, but that's a whole nother conversation. (laughs) And if you don't do this, if you choose not to do it, then you're going to have some issues with your teacher. Possibly they may say things to you that hurt your feelings. They may treat you differently in the classroom if you continue to not do your homework. You may lose recess time. These are hard truths, but they absolutely will happen. And you're not implying that they should be upset about it. 
you're just saying you probably will be. And I'll connect this to another story. When our kids first got flu shots and all, all the different shots, we just prepared them for it. Like it's gonna hurt. Yeah. Like we, I feel like I would observe parents saying to their kids, it's not that bad. Don't worry about it. It's going to be a little, a little pinch, <laughs> just a little pinch. And tell that to a, a 12 month old. They're like a pinch. <laughs> like, that lasts forever. To... <laughs> For <12 Yeah>. months. <laughs> that hurt. That was not like I've been pinched before and that hurt. But what we noticed is when we prepared them for the pain, it didn't seem to last as long. They're like, yeah, you said it was going to hurt. It did. And now it doesn't hurt. No, I can trust my caregiver too. Yeah. So it establishes that trust. And I think that doing the same thing in education is like, look, you haven't done your homework all week. And when you do that, your teacher, because she's human or is going to treat you differently. I don't want them to, you don't want them to, but it's going to happen because they have certain expectations of you. And so is that a risk you want to take? I think a lot of people would say you can't give a first grader a choice like that. And from my perspective, that's the only choice I have, because if I try to tell them what's important in life, then they're going to listen to me less. If I spend my time, if I invest my time in telling them what's important and not letting them try to observe about what's important, they're going to listen to me less throughout life, not more. I believe I'm I'm with you, but yeah, tell me why. (laughs) Because there's no trust. If they don't come to trust their own brain, their own uh, sensibilities, they come to trust me in a sense, or they fear me. But then when I lead them astray, because the things that I tell them cause them pain, then that trust erodes. Mm -hmm. And there's dissonance too, when we are trying to convince our kids to move outside of their intuition, there's this dissonance that creates dissonance within them of, you know, this person who's supposed to keep me safe and guide me is telling me it should be this way. And my inner voice is telling me it should be this way. And that dissonance is disconcerting. And we abandon ourselves very early on in order to, to please and follow the guidance of the other person. And speaking from personal experience, when you awaken to that and you realize that your life has been you've been guided away from your true purpose your whole life it's very disturbing (laughs) and hard to reckon with and people say i think the message that we end up sending and i think this is even this can be hard to hear is that we end up sending this message that you can't trust the way that you feel yes yeah you can't trust yourself i know better than you what's right for you and what's best Mm -hmm. for you and sometimes message. we do. Well, <laughs> yes, of course. Like we can't just let them sit down and just eat nothing but cake for every single meal because they'll feel sick and gross and and not good. And so yes, yeah. of course. Sometimes we we do. We are the parent. We do know we have to keep them safe. We have to keep them out of the street. You know, when they're three and are running into traffic. You know, we have to do yeah. those things. But the who we are your life purpose, those things. I think we can trust our kids with that stuff. Don't you? Yeah. A lot of times, and they may seem purposeless a lot of times. And if we could just remember all the hours that we wasted as a youth, I think we would worry about that less. Yeah. 
but it's, we have this, we don't remember it correctly. So we see kids, you know, playing hours with, uh, I don't know, a video game or something that we start to build up this fear that Mm. they're, they're building this unhealthy habit. And we don't realize how much time we did that and that there's actually probably a lot more value to that time because they're doing something they love than we would assume there is. I don't know if there's a good way to measure all that. Uh, I think there's researchers that are trying to do that. I don't know a lot of the research on it. Okay. So I think you touched on something though, with this homework question that I hear from parents of kids of all different ages. I think the oldest one I worked with on this and I worked with the child and the parents was 17 and he just hated science homework. He hated doing a science homework. And, you know, of course, the dad's concern was that if he doesn't do his science homework, he won't be prepared for the test. And if he doesn't do well on the test, and he won't get into a good college, and then he'll never have a good job. And he was just way, like so far down the line. And so, and ultimately, the, the kid just found the topics boring. He just didn't like it. So the research on homework for kids is that there's really no benefit to it until fifth grade. Anyway, And so if my kids were coming home with homework in grade school, I probably would not worry about it. I have one kid who likes worksheets and enjoys them. And so she would do them. And the other kid, I'm sure she's just in first grade now. But if she came home with worksheets, I'm sure she would not do them. And that would probably be just fine with me. And I don't mind being a squeaky wheel in my kid's school either. So um, I would be fine advocating for them to have less homework if that was a problem. But... Later, you know, fifth grade, sixth grade, eighth grade, tenth grade, there are some pieces of it that are bigger, lasting consequences. Like if they are not getting the grades that they want and they have a goal of going into a field where they need a college degree and would benefit from being in a more prestigious college, for example, and that's their goal, how, what do we do about that when they're refusing to do their homework? I think we come back to them constantly and because it's more about the relationship, their relationship to themselves, their relationship to their teachers and their school and their, and with us as parents. So we have to be willing to stop asking the advice givers like me and you <laughs> and me. to throw ourselves under the bus a little bit and say, this is between you and your kid. And so my advice is to figure out how to have these conversations and figure out how to express frustration like, I don't understand my oldest, his name is Noah. So I'll use his name. It's like, I don't understand Noah. It's like, you have these really exciting goals about going to college, but everything that I see that you do, and maybe everything is probably too strong of a word, but a lot of the things you do seem like they go against that goal. Are you okay with that? You know? And I mean, that's what a a lot of coaches would do. It's like, you said you wanted this. Is that still what you want? Because if it isn't what you want, I have no reason to push you into that. But if it is what you want, then do you want any help? And I think that goes back to that diaper change consent. Do you want my help with this? We normally infer that our kids do want our help. And most of the time they don't (laughs) want to do it on their own. Mm -hmm. And they want to be accepted even in the midst of, I mean, as a mental health person, I think you understand this very well that people in depression and with anxiety, they don't want help with it. 
They want to be accepted within that. They want to be loved. So if I'm going to be lazy my senior year and I don't want to do my homework and my parent starts to treat me differently, they've proven to me that their love is no longer unconditional. Mm. They've shown that to me by the way that they've treated me. But if I say that I have no goals this year, I'm just so sick of school. I'm just ready to be done. And my parent says, I understand that. I love you regardless. You know, you're getting to the age where all of these choices are yours anyway. To many that feels like two hands off. It's like, what else are you going to do? You're going to start to punish them at the age of 15, 16, and 17. And you're going to start to erode that trust that you've been working your whole life to build. And you're going to try to estrange them to an extent. And I can speak from experience in my family that that's what happened to me. My parents got afraid and they started to push harder and they ended up just pushing me away. Mm. And I'm not saying that that's going to happen to every family, but I mean, it's certainly a risk and it's a risk that I'm not sure I'm willing to take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you said something a while back that I think you almost contradicted yourself. So you said that this question of how do I get my chicken? child to do their homework is not a question for you and me. It's a question, you know, that's something that's between you and your child. And I think really your answer showed that it's not actually even between you and your child. That is your child's problem. And that's between themselves, you know, their competing desires, their long-term goals and their in the moment priorities. And that it's not our job to decide for them or to impose our priorities and goals on them, but it's our job to create a space where they can get curious with themselves and, and work that out for themselves. And that we don't leave them to it, but we give them the space to be vulnerable with themselves, to, to look at how are my actions lining up with my my stated goals and beliefs? That's hard. You need someone who you feel safe with yeah. to be vulnerable in that way, to be open and questioning that way, you know? I've been going through this in my own life that I've been working on a book on um, the last 18 months, actually two years now. I started it right when the pandemic started, all about these concepts. And it's gotten to the point where I've finished it and looking for an agent and writing the book proposal. And I just ran out of gas and I've had to ask myself, how important is this to me? And my wife and I got to a place where she was able to recognize that, that she needed to ask my permission. Do you want some accountability or do you need to be left alone on this? At that point I said, honestly, I don't want any help with it. I don't want to get out of this because I I just want to sit with this for a minute. And so that's been going on the last four or five months. I found a new video game, I think is part of it is distracting (laughs) me. So I'm not immune to it either. No, no, none of us are. I think the parents think we're so much better than kids and we're not. (laughs) No, we're much worse. After the kids go to bed, my wife and I are constantly on our phones. And my parents tried to curtail my love of video games. And it didn't work. I just turned 40 this year and it's like, I still love video games. So that's been a a source of distraction for me, but I can start to feel myself coming out of that a little bit. It's like, no, this manuscript, this is important. What are some changes I need to make? And I think kids deserve the chance to start having those conversations with themselves as early as possible in the most like, mundane scenarios. We started having these conversations with our son when he was 
nine months old stacking blocks. Mm -hmm. He got upset that they tumbled. I have this on video and he started crying. I said, well, do you want to try it again? Or do you want to do something else? Helping him understand that there, he has a choice. And he just kind of sat there and frowned. And then he got back up and started doing it again. Of course, I would have been just as happy if he decided I'm ready to do something else mm -hmm. or I'm going to keep being upset about it. But I wanted to send the message that he had a choice about how he felt about it. And that he didn't have to keep going when it was causing him pain, that it was okay to take yeah. a break and come back to it later. And I guess I would say that about homework with older kids is like, you seem to be really frustrated with this. Take a step back from it if you want or don't turn it in and see what happens. You know, I ran into a similar situation with my oldest when she was five and a half going on six. I think she wanted to take violin lessons and she was already in gymnastics and dance, which she loved. And so we were a little nervous about adding another activity because she's quite young and we really try to keep them unscheduled, you know, so that yeah. they have lots of time. If they're going to be in school all day, then we want them to have lots of free time after school. And so we went in with a little bit of hesitation and she started the lessons. She really liked it, but she wasn't practicing and between her lessons. And we had a very similar discussion. You know, we sat down and we said, honey, you know, you really wanted to be able to learn the violin. And at the same time, you know, in order to learn the violin, you do have to practice between lessons um, and you're not wanting to practice. So what's up? What's going on with that? And I mean, we helped her reflect on the fact that she was feeling overscheduled. Yeah. She didn't feel like she had enough time to play in the evenings. She didn't really realize when she started taking the lessons that she would have to give up time every evening, you know, mm -hmm. not just the lesson evening to practice. And we would have been fine with her still going if her teacher was fine with her not practicing, but her teacher wasn't fine with, Yeah, we were fine. It was a pretty small fee and to have her just have the experience of going and experiencing music without practicing in between, we were fine with that. But her teacher wasn't fine. That was part of the contract kind of with the verbal contract. Yeah. And, and so we helped her make that decision and we dropped it. And I think a lot of parents are reluctant to let their kids quit yeah. something that they know isn't right for them, that the kid has, you know, d tried and then is deciding that like, nope, this is actually not what I want, you know? But I think that the younger we can help them with that discernment and figuring those things out themselves and not imposing our will and our priorities and our goals for them on them, sooner they get experience with that level of self-curiosity and discernment, the easier it will be as they get older. And I mean, those are the very thing, skills that we want them having when they're, they're teenagers and then they're at the par party and somebody offers them a hit of a of pot. And we want them to be able to, in that moment, have those skills to use that discernment, that it's their choice, that they have competing goals and priorities and to take a look at them and decide what's right for them. You know, we want them to have that ability. Yeah, and we want them to not make that decision based on my mom's going to kill me. Right. But, or my mom's going to be upset with me, but because this doesn't align with the goals that I have. My wife was really good about that. And almost surprisingly, she got really into horse riding when she was a teenager. So that was everything to her. So she didn't date and didn't, didn't go to parties because her training was just so that important to her. Mm -hmm. And it was actually something that her parents tried to get her to do less 
they wanted her to be well, more well-rounded. Like, well, we think you should do basketball. And she's like, no, only horses. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And you'll find that with some kids, they just get super obsessed. And then some kids just want to spread their wings and like experience it all. Like dabble. Yeah. I want to do basketball and gymnastics and baseball and softball and all this stuff and hang out with friends and have a bunch of boyfriends or girlfriends. Like, I just want a taste of everything. And I was more that way. I just wanted to try a lot of different stuff and then quit if I didn't like it. And that makes adults really uncomfortable when kids want to quit things. It really does. I think that it comes back to that oftentimes fear is running the ship for grownups. You know, that we have this, our own idea of what it means to be a good, productive citizen and member of a community that are all informed by our own past experiences and it makes us really uncomfortable to see our kids perhaps moving outside of that um, and into unknown territory. We get scared. It's hard to be a parent when you're scared. It is. It's hard to, I use that metaphor a lot, actually, that I don't see animals and people making good decisions when they're backed in a corner. You know, when you think about, you know, a stray dog or some stray animal, if you back into a corner, it makes really poor decisions. And that's because when we're full of fear, we don't make decisions. We just react. And, and that's where I think a lot of punishments come from. And I'm not immune to it. I don't want to make it seem like to the listener that I'm not afraid as a dad No, not at all. or that as a dad, I may face less and different fears than my wife does, but I definitely have fears and I have to confront them all the time. Things that make me uncomfortable. And I'm like, I have to stop and ask myself, why am I so uncomfortable with this? Why am I so triggered when all my son really did was ask me if he could use the computer, but I feel angry at him. Where's that anger coming from? Mm -hmm. And I don't have all the answers for that. I'm still working through that. But that's what some of the, the conversations that I have on Twitter, which is probably the best place to connect with me. And then the, the two different parent groups that I facilitate we're talking about topics that are like, how can we remove the authoritarianism of our childhood that came both from our teachers and our parents and most of the adults in our lives? How can we remove that from our own practice? Because we feel the issues that it caused in us. It's so hard when it's so deeply ingrained and we're blind to it a lot of the time until it shows up in in our triggers and our reactivity. Absolutely. And what are, are people able to join you in those groups? What are they? Yeah, two different ones. One's called Kids Are People. It's about 150 members and we post articles and stuff and just try to connect with each other on like, it's not like an advice group. It's more just like, how do we think about these things? It's more a thought based than it is like, Like we're in this. It's not like, what do I do in this situation? Although that does come up sometimes. And then the other one's called self-directed community. Mm -hmm. So, and I'll send you those links and um, you can put those in the description, but I think both of those are linked to my website. Although I do need to probably spend some time updating that, (laughs) but where I have most of the conversations and connect with most of the homeschoolers is actually on Twitter. Mm -hmm. We just jump in each other's threads and, uh, I post a little bit on Instagram, but I'm not super active there. I'm trying, I do some of these podcasts and the followers go to Instagram. Mm-hmm. They don't, I think a lot of the people who hear me, they just want to see like the pictures and maybe some of the text. They don't want to like jump, try to jump into more conversations on Twitter, 
which I'm fine with. So I am taking some of my content from Twitter, which I consider just like, they're like snippets, little proverbs from my writings Mm -hmm. that I have found truth in that I reflect on and I'll screenshot those and throw them up on my Instagram. So I am starting to put more stuff there, but it's just not a lot. Yeah, I think that people are often in different places and ready for different levels of interaction. I think, yeah. you know, people who need to to hear things quite a lot before they're ready to take action on them and engage in them more actively, too. So it's yeah. good to have conversations like this. And I think that's awesome. So yes, your links will all be in the show notes. I really appreciate this conversation. I appreciate the kind of the winding nature of it. But really what it comes down to, I think, is, you know, respecting kids as people that we are not there the person who is supposed to tell them what to do in their lives what's important in their lives and what matters in their lives but help them give them space for exploring that and figuring them out, that out themselves while keeping them safe of course absolutely yeah. i like to say that to, to kind of close that idea off is that because kids are people everything that you might do to grow or diminish the that the the richness of a relationship with an adult also impacts your relationship with your child so if you're annoying and nagging and controlling the same way you wouldn't want to do that with your spouse that's going to influence the relationship and everything that would help build you a better relationship with an adult will also help you build a better relationship with a child so it goes both ways I love that. Thank you for wrapping us up that way. Thank you so much for this, your time and your conversation. Thank you. Okay. So thanks for listening today. Um, Remember to subscribe to the podcast. And if it was helpful, leave me a review that really helps others find the podcast and join us in this really important work of um, creating a parenthood that we don't have to escape from and creating a childhood for our kids that they don't have to recover from. And if you're listening, grab a screenshot and tag me on Instagram so that I can give you a shout out Um, and definitely go follow me on Instagram. I'm at Laura Froyan PhD. Um, That's where you can get a behind the scenes look at what balanced conscious parenting looks like in action with my family. And plus I share a lot of other really great resources there too. All right. That's it for me today. I hope that you keep taking really good care of your kids and your family and each other and most importantly of yourself. And just remember, balance is a verb and you're already doing it. You've got this.